Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, Andy and uh, Kathy, me and Brandon went down to Nashville to the Southern Baptist Convention, which is an annual meeting that Southern Baptists come together for once a year. It's in different locations throughout the country. And they come together once a year, and that's the one time a year that the Southern Baptist Convention functions like a denomination. If you don't know, Baptist churches are not hierarchical. They're not like the United Methodists. They're not like Presbyterians. Each church is its own local authority. And that, that brings us back to Matthew chapter 18 and the keys of the kingdom. There's some, some elements of, of authority being in the local church that we recognize isn't just simply giving to elders or any presbytery or anything like that, but the local church itself from church to church has delegated authority by God. And so Baptist churches historically have been independent and then they have worked together in different convict conventions to do things like missions together. And the idea is that Collections of churches can gather more money to send missionaries out and to do certain things together than they can individually. And so churches voluntarily join themselves to different groups to be able to do bigger things together that they couldn't do themselves. And so once a year, you go down and there's this, the Southern Baptist Convention is the largest Protestant denomination in the world. There's 16 million strong members within uh, uh, the, the convention and I think 50-something thousand churches throughout the United States. And we go down to the convention and basically, the long story short, the worst case scenario happened with who was voted in as president, with some of the, uh, the things that happened. It's just, it's just not good. If you want some updates uh, in greater detail on some of the things that happened, I put out a podcast this week, uh, and you can find that. It's floating around on the internet. You can find that just if, if you want to know where that's at. It's under the Shepherd's Crook podcast. You can find that in your iTunes or any podcast player. You can just open it up and, and listen to that. But long story short, the president that was voted in is a moderate at best when it comes to theology. Uh, at worst, he is heretical. So on their, on their website uh, up until the day of, the statement of faith on their website of, the, of Ed Linton's church that he pastors was a partialist, a partialism statement of faith on the Trinity, which says that God is one God in three parts. So partialism, and it, that is a rejection of classic uh, Christian theology and its understanding and our understanding of who God is. Um, the, the God is not split into three parts. We're partially, the Father's partially God, the Son's partially God, and the Spirit's partially God. The uh, understanding of the Scriptures is that each person of the Trinity is fully God, and yet there's only one God. And there's no way to fully understand that, but uh, it, it goes against the Baptist faith and message. And he was voted in as the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He also has his wife co-preach with him, which the scriptures are flat out against. And so that's deeply problematic as well. It not only goes against the scriptures, it goes against the Baptist faith and message also. And so as he steps into the presidency, there are concerns about where the denomination is going to go. There was also concerns about the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, which is the, an entity within the Southern Baptist Convention that is supposed to fight for religious liberty in North America. Over the last year and a half, as churches and pastors have been going to prison, the ERLC has been completely silent 
in their fight for religious liberty across the United States, Canada and Mexico, primarily in Canada and the United States. They have not spoken up when churches like John MacArthur's church, although they're not a Southern Baptist church, they've not spoken up when churches have made a stand. Uh, instead, they have remained silent on issues that they should have been speaking loudly, and they've said nothing about Pastor James Coates or Pastor Tim Stevens in, in Canada that have been arrested and, and put behind bars for simply obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have been very disappointed with the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission. The North American Mission Board is a branch that we actually planted our church through that funded this church plant and gave us a lot of money to start the church. And unfortunately, the North American Mission Board has a lot of question marks about where the money has gone over the last decade. And so if you look at the budget for the North American Mission Board from 2000 to 2010 and compare that 10-year decade budget and spending with 2010 to 2020 spending and budget, what you'll find is half the amount of churches have been planted over the last decade, but they have spent $407 million more over this decade than they did between 2000 and 2010. And so when those question marks were brought up from the, from the messengers, which is what individual church members are called when they go to the convention, there were crickets from the stage. And unfortunately, there were not answers that were sufficient for the questions that were being asked from the messengers. And so what we've decided to do as, a, as an elder team and as a church is specifically withdraw all funding from the North American Mission Board. We have already withdrawn funding from the ERLC, and we're not going to give another dime to the North American Mission Board if we can't get basic answers about where the money is going. And I think that's fair to you, and we want to respect as we give to the Lord, and we want to give and honor Him in the way we spend our money and, and, and the way we, we function as a church. We don't want to give to entities that we don't know where, where the money's going or if it's being spent in a wise and godly manner. And um, also... We are going to pray about what we're to do within the Southern Baptist Convention, um, whether we stay, whether we go, where we give our money. We do want to continue to fund missionaries, and we do want to continue to fund our local association, with, which is the Nine Mile Association. So there's a lot of big question marks. There are big advantages, if you don't know. We function like a non-denominational denomination as a church. We have our own authority. But there, the International Mission Board is the largest missionary endeavor that the world honestly has ever seen of cooperation of churches. The missionaries that are sent out by the North, by, by International Mission Board in, in association with the Southern Baptist Convention, those missionaries don't have to raise their own support. They don't have to go church to church asking for their support because churches just like ours are giving to the International Mission Board and they go out with a salary into unreached places throughout the world and places that have zero to no gospel presence. And they go out and do their work because churches like us are partnering together to send them. And we want to continue to, we don't want to pull funds from missionaries out doing the frontline work in global missions. And so we're trying to pray through. Another reason to not just immediately jettison the Southern Baptist Convention is because there's approximately, and I just learned this this morning, 60 to 70 billion, 30 billion dollars of assets that are owned by the Southern Baptist Convention. When it comes to properties, Southern Baptist Convention uh, owns properties all throughout the United States. And if, if the conservatives just walk away and give everything over, you're giving $30 billion of assets into liberal hands that are going to basically destroy everything. And if you don't know, if you, if you turn left theologically, you look at every single denomination in our country, and it always starts with the image of God, how we view men and women. Liberalism always starts with questions about God's word, and then it goes into egalitarianism, basically saying that men and women are the exact same. And if you look at every denomination that's done that, they have big church buildings and massive assets with nobody in those buildings. 
And so a pathway to death spiritually is a march to the left theologically. And if you begin to question God's word as Eve did and as Adam did in the, in the garden, that's the path to death as an individual church, as a Christian, and as a denomination. And so we want to let you know that we're going to be praying and asking for wisdom from the Lord and also applying biblical, biblical wisdom and principles as we make decisions going forward. But we want to ask you to pray because we want to be wise and we do not want to give money into the hands of people who are using it in, a, in, in, a, uh, in an ungodly manner. And so there's a lot to pray about, right? There's big advantages being a part of a, of a global network because we can do a lot of things and see a lot of things done. But there's also disadvantages when things go bad like, they've, like they're going. So, Also, the other thing that was really di disappointing is that Southern Baptists did not uh, adopt a resolution um, to change viewing women as victims of abortion rather than perpetrators of murder. And that sounds terrible. The victims, though in abortion are not the women. The victims in abortion are the children who have been murdered. And we want to make a stand on that. As we love the women who have committed that murder, we don't want to lighten the language because we want people to recognize the seriousness and the gravity of it. And we want to say that there's forgiveness in this life, free and total forgiveness from even the sin and the crime of murder. And we want to fight for the actual victims, which are those babies. And uh, those are hard discussions to have, but we need to have them, and we need to, we need to call them according, call murder what it is according to the Bible, and we don't want to lighten the blow of that to make it somehow more palpable for us. And um, we are the frog in the kettle in society when it comes to the issue of murder of, of babies in the womb. Um, and so we want to be gracious, but we want to be as gracious as God would have us, and we also want to proclaim the truth that there's total and free forgiveness even for murder. Let's go ahead and pray. I'm going to pray for Andrea as well. And I mentioned that when you were out there bringing rain and Elise out there. And uh, we'll pray for the SBC. And then this is two weeks in a row we haven't done an open share time. We're going to get back to that next week. We're going to hear from, from you. So take an opportunity for the second week to encourage each other. We're all a part of the body of Christ here. And if you're a visitor with us, normally we open the floor and ask people just to encourage each other and, and share in a time of just giving encouragement from God's Word or about what the Lord is doing. So take that opportunity after the service, even if you haven't already before the service, to get to, know, get to know somebody. We have some visitors with us today, new people, new faces. Get to know them, but also bring encouragement to each other. We don't come here just to sit and consume. We come to contribute. You've heard me say that so many times. We come to contribute to the body of Christ. We each play a part. Let's pray. Lord, we need wisdom and direction as we make decisions in what to do um, with the Southern Baptist Convention. We want to build locally. We want to grow and get stronger and stronger locally. But it seems like we're being invited into a fight nationally to fight for the truth and to fight for the repentance of those who would be moving away from biblical truth and embracing things that are not good, not right, and not healthy. So give us wisdom on, on how to do this, how to pull money away from entities that don't need it and help us to know where to continue to give money and, and all of that, we trust that you're going to give us wisdom. We thank you for Andrea Tolliver. Thank you so much for John and Andrea, all the work they've been doing. I pray right now that she's at the hospital that they would give some sort of uh, uh, direction on what's going on, why her breathing seems to be suppressed, whether it's allergies or whatever, and I pray that you would help her and, uh, and bring swift healing and health to her body. Lord, we love you. We need wisdom and direction in all that we say and do today. Thank you that you have spoken to us. And as we hear from your word, we're actually hearing you speak. 
Thank you that you've not left us without a word from you. You're always speaking to us. And give us the ears to hear. Help us to see what you have us to see and hear what you have us to hear this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 11 through 24 this morning. The sermon title, you may be getting a theme once you hear this title through, the chap- through chapter 1. The theme or the sermon title this morning is the transforming gospel. The transforming gospel. The gospel of Jesus transforms us, does it not? Jesus doesn't leave us the same. He changes us, and that's good news. First, fathers, I want to address you before we get into Galatians this morning. We live in a largely fatherless society for several factors, the chief amongst them being sin. But a fatherless society hates father rule or patriarchy because the world is angry at their fathers for not being there, and they are jealous of those who have good ones. You just think about that. A fatherless society, think about all the rage against the patriarchy right now. A fatherless society hates the patriarchy because they're angry at their dads for not being there or for being terrible dads. And they're really jealous of those who have good ones because when you see a good dad, you recognize it. And the rage against the patriarchy is a farce. It's not real. It's false. It's a, uh, it's a cry out. It's a crying out for actual patriarchy. Please give us a nation full of good fathers. That's what the world wants as they rage. And according to God's word, as the man goes, so goes the family. Men have power. power have, men have power to destroy and they have power to build. Now, Doug Wilson says that masculinity is the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. And that's for every man, not just fathers. Glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. And I'm thankful to be in a company of good men. This church has a collection of the best men I've ever been around. And that's the truth. It's the group of the best men that I've ever seen lead their families. It's a group of men that want to grow. And, um, and I'm thankful. I'm thankful for the company of men that are here. We want more and more men that are going to take responsibility gladly for the good of those that are around them. So as a way of reminder and encouragement for you this morning, men and fathers, uh, just be encouraged and be challenged. Fathers set the vision and mission of the family. That's what fathers do. They set the vision and the mission for the family. Men are leaders, therefore fathers are leaders. Let us be decisive Know where the family is going, set the direction, and set that direction and aim for the glory of God and the expansion of the kingdom of His Son. That's what we want to see. We want to see our family, a group of family, a group of individuals who are collectively on mission for the glory of God and for the expansion of the kingdom of His Son. Fathers are to shepherd their families well. Um, Our families, men... And for those who are not fathers in the room, those who are your peers, those who are around you, your friends, your spiritual sons, as Paul had a spiritual son in Timothy, those who are not fathers, the commission is to get spiritual sons. Find them. Pour your life into them. Families need to know God's grace, and they need to live by God's grace, and so walk in His commandments. So this year, here's the challenge, guys. If you're not already in leading in family worship, start leading family worship. Don't make your wife feel like she has to make you take the lead. 
or come up with some ways to get you to take the lead. Take the lead, be responsible, and together, myself included, step up in ways that we need to step up. Take responsibility for the education, not just spiritually, but the education of your children in a holistic manner. Uh, make decisions, men, with your great-great-grandchildren in, in mind. Make decisions with them in mind. Build wealth for your children's children. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. A wise man named Solomon once said that. Men are protectors. We're providers. We protect. We build. The world is dangerous for our children if we stay passive. The world will eat our children and grandchildren alive. But in time, if we lead them, here's the deal. Our children will be dangerous to the world. Either the world is going to be dangerous to our children, or our children are going to be dangerous to the world. And the Bible tells us that they are arrows in the hand of a warrior. And if we shoot them outright, they'll go and the world will shake in their boots at the children that are raised by our men and by our families. So that's what we want to see. All right, we're done. It's good to be a father, right? It's good to be a man. It's good to be a father. It's good to be a woman, and it's good to be a mother. It's a good thing. God made it that way. Only men can be fathers. <laughs> Biological men. If anyone is in Christ, he is a... New, new creation. Jesus changes people. He makes people that live differently than the world lives. They live differently. The Holy Spirit changes us, changes adult rebels into sons or daughters of the living God. The Holy Spirit graciously saves children who don't have to grow up through open rebellion. You all know the stories of those two types of people, the stories of the drugs to Jesus person and crowd and the stories of the children who grew up and all they ever remember is growing up in a godly environment. They became a Christian at an early age and they can't even pinpoint when it was they became a Christian, but they do have faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. And those stories, both of them are testimonies to the grace of God and the power of God. Every Christian like Paul is a testimony of the grace and power of God. It's amazing. We're different people. We're supernatural people. We've been changed by the power of the gospel. As Paul Washer said one time, you can't be hit by a Mack truck, like physically ran over by the Mack truck and not be injured. You're going to be physically augmented if you get hit by a Mack truck. And if you get hit by the grace of God, you get spiritually augmented. You're changed. You can't be the same. The grace of God runs into people and changes people for the good and not for harm. You once were dead, now you're alive. Your life is different because you are alive and everybody in the world who's not been born again is spiritually dead. They may talk about spiritual matters. They may talk about religion. They may care about morality and they may be fighting for this country. But if they don't know Jesus, if they've not been born again, they're still, still, still spiritually dead. You have been brought from death to life. You are a supernatural being. We are supernaturalists here. We believe that God intervenes in this world and he bends natural orders and processes of things to intervene in the lives of actual people. And he changes us from the inside out. And if he did not intervene, we would march our way into hell itself. But God intervenes and he changes people's lives. And we're never the same. Look at Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. 
For you have heard of my former life in Judaism and how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who set me apart from before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach among the Gentiles, I didn't immediately consult anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went immediately into Arabia and then returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing you before God, I do not lie. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Sicilia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Paul continues to address the issue that's at hand. There's two big issues at hand. One, the churches in Galatia were seeing a perverted gospel. People were coming in, the Judaizers, and they were saying that you have to trust in Jesus, but you also have to follow the traditions of man, and you also have to be circumcised. You have to follow the law of Moses. If you're going to be justified, you have to trust in Jesus, and you have to be circumcised. And Paul vehemently writes against that false gospel. But also, what was happening is these Judaizers were just, I mean, chipping away at the authority of the Apostle Paul and saying, Paul really doesn't have authority here. He may have some good things to say, but he's not a real apostle. He's not really teaching the things of God. What you really need is our teaching. And to this day, the character of Paul continues to get attacked. And people to this day, especially with liberal theologians, they want to pit Paul against Jesus. And if you ever heard that argument before, it goes like this. Jesus said this, but Paul said that. Well, I'm just going to go with Jesus. And that is a terrible way to look at the Scriptures. Don't do that. If you've ever done that, or if you still do that, stop it. That's bad. What you're saying is, Jesus' words are somehow more authoritative, or that the Spirit of God didn't equally inspire all of the words of God. And so you're the great arbitrator of which are the actual words of God. It's an arrogant position. All of the Bible, as we said a couple weeks ago, are red letter. They're all equally inspired. And so Paul begins to address them, and he, he reminds them, For I would have you know, brothers, the gospel that I preached, that was preached by me, is not man's gospel. This gospel was not made up by human beings. Paul got this gospel from Christ himself. That's what he says. It was not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. There is a massive difference, massive difference between man-made gospels and a gospel given to us by Jesus Christ. And we've highlighted these, and it bears repeating the differences. What is a man-made gospel all about? And you can kind of pin these categories, and you can recognize these. If you start to see it, you'll recognize these across the board in all sorts of false gospels. Man-made gospels focus everything in on the person, even God himself. A man-made gospel is all about you. It's all about your power and your abilities. A man-made gospel is all about your value. A man-made gospel is all about you doing the work to get to heaven. A man-made gospel is all about building parameters and building ways to heaven that are different than by grace through faith in Christ alone. It's all about what you can do for the Lord. It's all about man-made gospels are all about your goodness. It says things like this, God loves you 
and you are amazing. If you just believed that, your life would be changed. There's some things that sound right about it. But the true gospel we've already been seeing is not about primarily... Oh, Andrea, you're here. We just prayed for you. Huh? Are you breathing okay? Okay, what'd they give you? Uh, it's all at Kroger right now. It's all at Kroger, okay, but all right, Andrew's here. All right. It's awesome. God's gospel, the true gospel that was given to Paul by Jesus, is about God. It's about how, glory, glory, how glorious God is, it's about what Christ has done for us, it's about what God does for sinners, it's, it's about His goodness. It's about turning our attention to Him in thankfulness and saying, God, thank You for what You have done for me. It's not about patting ourselves on the back or weighing our lives in the scales and balances of good and evil and maybe, maybe, just maybe, we've done enough good to get to heaven. It's about what God does for us. God loves you and He is awesome. Notice the difference there in the wording. Man-made religion says God loves you and you're amazing or you're awesome. Religion, or Christian, the real gospel says God loves you and he's awesome. It doesn't mean you have to have a self-loathing position about yourself. You shouldn't. But the primary focus in the real true gospel turns us to say, God, you are so gracious. You are worthy of all my praise, my thoughts, my life, my works. My whole life is going to be devoted to you because you are that worth it. You are so good. And I love you. I don't have to bask in my own glory or think about how worthy I am to get through the day. I get to thank you for all that you've done for me. There's a difference between man-made religion and God-given truth. I, I say this a lot, but it's really important. You really need to see the uniqueness of the gospel. No other religion says this. This is a, a good apologetic tool to be able to understand the differences between global religion and the true gospel of Jesus Christ. God saves sinners without the help of sinners. That alone, it, that, that statement stands in and of itself as a different message than any other system in how to get to God. God saves sinners without the help of sinners by grace through faith. That's nowhere else. Every other religion has to do with the ability of the followers, of the constituents, of those who are following whatever that system of belief is. It's about what they can do to earn. And Christianity is the opposite of that. It says that you can't do enough to earn. And even your righteous activities, even the most pure motives, are still stained with wickedness. Because you could always honor Him more. We never honor God to the degree that He is honorable. We never glorify God to the degree He is glorious. And so in any given moment, even through our obedience, through the power of the Holy Spirit, God accepts our obedience as believers who have been given the very righteousness of Christ. But the, the obedience that He accepts is not our saving obedience. It's still imperfect obedience. We never obey perfectly. We can always obey more. Uh, no other religion says that you can know God is happy with you right now. That you have peace with God right now. No other religion in the world can give you assurance of your faith. People have to live with the crushing weight of never knowing if they've actually done enough in this life. And that is not the gospel message. 
We say it over and over again. You can know today, right now, that you're right with God. Christianity puts justification on the front end, not the back end. Peace with God now, not saying you can get peace with God later if you do good enough. Man did not make up the true gospel. It's evident in the fact that it's so radically different. You can't find it through the invention of people. And Paul wants to tell them about this gospel and how powerful this gospel really is. Because the naysayers of this potent, true, real gospel are saying that the gospel is not actually going to transform you. That you actually have to control by means of the law of God. That will just control the great... Tell them that they have to do these things to be saved. Then we can control behavior. And we've talked about it. But Paul is going to open up and say, no, this is how transforming the gospel actually is. This is how powerful the gospel actually is. And he opens up and he begins to tell about his past. And there's amazing freedom. If you'll see this, there's amazing freedom when you understand the grace of God and how free and how powerful it is that all of your sins can be forgiven. You're actually free to open up about the dark places of your past. And Paul opens up to the darkest place of his past. And he doesn't hide it, which is what we so often do. Even when we get our testimonies, we get nervous. If I tell them what I've done in my life, if I actually open up, and if I confess this sin, then people are going to shun me. They're not going to love me. They're not going to forgive me. God won't forgive me, and people certainly won't. But look what Paul does, the amazing freedom that Paul has, that he's actually walking in. Look at verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Imagine the pain for the apostle upon the Holy Spirit leading him to verbally put these things down on paper. Imagine the pain of thinking back to those families that he dragged out of their homes. Imagine him thinking back to the moment standing before Stephen, Deacon Stephen, as Stephen is getting stoned to death because of his faith, and Paul standing there in an approving manner. Imagine him thinking back, now loving the gospel of Jesus Christ and giving his very life for it. And he, he thinks back and he writes back about when he was violently persecuting the church of God. Do you have things in your past, when you think about them, you're just like, oh, you just can't go there? You know, you just almost want to vomit thinking about it. You're like, my gosh, I was, I cannot believe, I'm just ashamed. And here is Paul with these memories, memories that get etched in your mind forever. I mean, he heard the cries of those. I just watched a video of Tim Stevens being locked up in Canada being arrested at his house and his children crying as, as their daddy gets put in the cop car for, 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 preaching the, for daring to preach the gospel. As only 100 pastors in the whole, whole nation, as we said last week, less than 100 pastors stand with them. As the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention won't say a word about it. And he's standing there going to prison and, and Paul remembers back to when he was doing things like that. But in a violent manner, he's free. He's free to open up about his past. He's not concerned if they're going to judge him in a way that's not right. He's free to open up and say, this is who I used to be. I want you to remember this. This is where I was. This is where 
The gospel of free grace has brought me. It's changed me. I'm a different man. This true gospel given not from men but from God doesn't give people the freedom to just go out and sin and live the same way. It actually changes people. And he's the case study. He was a devout Jew. The Jew of all Jews. He calls himself to the church of Corinth. He persecuted the church of God. He was moving up. He was an up-and-comer. Hey, have you heard about the, about the Apostle Paul? Man, his memory is amazing. He's this young guy. He's a prodigy. He's got so much of the Scriptures memorized. He really understands the law of God. Man, Paul, I'm telling you what, he is going to end up being, he's going to lead the Sanhedrin. I mean, this guy, he knows his stuff. He's going to replace Gamaliel one day. Gamaliel, the great teacher of Judaism, taught Paul. And he was extremely zealous, not just for the law of God, but for the Mishnah and the Talmud, the commandments of men, he was zealous for those traditions. You know, the same, same traditions that Jesus said, you set aside the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition. We just read that in our Bible reading challenge this week. And so Paul was passionate about it all, zealous for those traditions. And the Jews, you know, they treated, treated those traditions as commandments from God, and that's why, why Jesus corrected them. But this was Paul. He actively opposed Christianity. He was worse than the weirdest lefty you know. Like, he was bad. A bad dude. He was worse than the Canadian police. Or the Chancellor of Canada. Forget the guy's name. He is a weirdo, though. You listen to him talk about the Great Reset. Man, Justin Thordeau. Is that it? Trudeau. Gosh. That great. Man, that guy. And so that was Paul. That was Paul. But here, here's the thing. Paul regularly does this. He'll, he'll set a contrast. This is who you, who you are. This is what God has done. This is who I was, but that's not who I am anymore. Because God's done something. He did something about it. And he certainly did that in the life of Paul. Look at verse 15. But when he who had set me apart from before I was born and called me by his grace, who was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I want you to consider three things that are universally true for every believer in this passage. And then one thing that was unique to Paul. God did something. He set him apart from before he was born. He called him by his grace and he revealed his son to Paul. And that's good news. And it's the same for all Christians. Each and every Christian. God set you apart from before you were born. Now, Ransom's outside and it worked out pretty good. Uh, I'm planning something pretty sweet for Ransom for his birthday. Each year, we do an obstacle course and we play Eye of the Tiger. Okay? And we get that going on repeat and he has to do this obstacle course. And I, I get like a water hose, I get a bunch of grass clippings and I put them under some chairs and I make him crawl through these grass clippings with water hose going. I make it a little bit tough. He loves to dig, so I make him dig. And then each year we try to do the zip line and I fail miserably every year of making a zip line. And he lets me know about it. Dad, you do a really bad job at that. I'm like, well, thanks for reminding me. Well, this year, okay, I can't say too much because the, the room in here, but I've got it figured out, all right? I've got some things planned for him beforehand. I don't have things planned for your kids for their birthdays, but I do for his and for his birthday. Valor, Valor has to be a four-year-old this next year before the obstacle courses start because that's when it started for, for Ransom. I don't know how that's going to work with Providence, but we're going to get some kind of girly. I don't know. Well, Jordan and I will work on it, or I'll have her climbing through grass clippings and she'll be in tears. You know, the boys are like, yes, this is the greatest thing ever. Like, Dad, why are you doing this to me? 
but I have something planned for my son's birthday party. Now, what if upon receiving that gift that morning, and I had planned it all beforehand, and I'd got it ready, and I'd spent some good money on it, and it made it extravagant for him. What if Ransom got angry with me because he did nothing to earn it, or because I didn't let him in on that information, or because I didn't do it for everybody's kids? What if he looked at me and said, Dad, you should have done this from, for everybody, all my friends. And I'm upset, and he started kicking and streaming, Dad, you should have told me that you had planned these things beforehand for me. And so often, that's what we do in Christian theology, and we wrap, wrap Christian theology around it, and we get upset because we think God should do for everybody what he's done for me, rather than simply enjoy what our Heavenly Father has done for his children. You leave the things that are secret to God and enjoy what he has revealed to you. The truth of the Bible and the truth of your salvation is that God planned it for you before you were born. Before you even existed, he set you apart and he had planned to give you good things. And it was according to his pleasure and his plan because he wanted to. You personally, you in this room with your name, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he set you aside and called you out and set you as his own, chose you as his own before you were born. He set you apart before you were born. It wasn't just the Apostle Paul. But also, he called you by his grace. Set you aside, set me apart from before I was born, and who called me by his grace. God called you by his grace. You were called not by way of reward. You were called by grace. God didn't call you in response to something you did. You responded to God in response to something He did. Your calling to salvation was in response. God called you while you were in your sin and rebellion against Him. That's the calling, how the calling of God works. He, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. The Holy Spirit came to you and you were called to the God of the universe not as a reward for your pursuit of God. That's not gracious. And that's what's so amazing about grace. Some of you were flamboyantly running from God when He called you. And others were pridefully in your morality sitting there acting as if you didn't need God to be gracious to you. And He called you by His grace. The calling of God is by His grace. And God revealed His Son to you. The Apostle Paul said that God was pleased to reveal His Son to me. Pleased. It pleased God the Father to say, See my Son. Look what He's done for you, child. You didn't understand the Gospel by way of your intellect. It wasn't that we figured this thing out through our reasoning abilities, through connecting X with Y, or connecting uh, this dot to that dot, one to two, figuring out how things go together, like with a connect the dots children's activity. That's not how it happened. God revealed Jesus to us. God supernaturally, through the power of the Holy Spirit, took blinders off of your eyes and you saw the truth in a way you didn't see the truth before. The Lord Jesus Christ was revealed to you and you saw 
how glorious he is. That is the Christian message. The Christian message is, yet again, plain and clear, a message about what God has done for sinners, actual sinners, people with names, your very name. It's about what God has done for you. And in Paul's case, there's something that's not unique to us all, that it was all done that he might be a preacher of the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, I love this. Paul was the Jew of all Jews, but he sent Paul to the Gentiles. God has a way of using you in a way that you're not naturally gifted to show his power. That, again, is one of the primary problems with some of the gift tests or the personality types is that God, God often so uses us in a way that just shows the glory of God because he uses us in a way that we're not gifted. He doesn't only use us in the way that can be explained by our natural giftings. He certainly will use our natural giftings, but so often, so often he uses you in a way that you don't even expect. You think, God, thank you because that was clearly your power because I don't have the ability to do that. Have you ever been there? Certainly he uses our natural giftings as well. But Paul, the Jew of all Jews, was called to be a preacher of the Gentiles. Now, Paul reminds them again, remember this is not man's gospel. Look at verse 16b. I didn't immediately, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I didn't immediately consult with anyone. Now, keep in mind what Paul's doing. Follow the, la the, the language and the train of thought here. I didn't immediately consult with anyone. Remember, not man's gospel. I didn't consult with anyone. Okay, I didn't receive this from any man. Now he's back talking about, I didn't immediately consult from anyone nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia, away into Arabia, and returned again to Damascus. Then, verse 18a, then after three years. Okay, this is crucial. Uh, Paul gets back to his point. He didn't receive this message from any man. He wasn't taught it. It wasn't a message that he received. This was direct revelation from Christ. Now, after Paul was converted, we can read about this in Acts chapter 9, but uh, the book of Acts is not fully chronological. So because the book is a 30-year book, there's big gaps, even from chapter to chapter, and even sometimes from paragraph to paragraph, that are not just sequential events. They're separated by several years, and that's what happens in Acts chapter 9. And that's why, if you haven't heard me say this before, and I, I got this from my father-in-law, it was so helpful, that if, if, if churches want all of the book of Acts every single week, they don't get what the book of Acts actually is. The, the, the churches in the book of Acts didn't get the book of Acts every single week when they came together. They got it over a 30-year period. And every church, even churches that appear dead today, when you consider a 30-year span, they collect in those 30 years signs and wonders, testimonies of God's power that can't be explained in any other way. But when you try to make everything that happened in the book of Acts every single week, you end up twisting and contorting and expecting things from God that he never promised to give. So when you look at the book of Acts chapter 9, we see that, that Paul, when he was converted, immediately ended up getting to Damascus. And if you remember, Ananias came and God used him. The, the, the scales dropped from his eyes. His, his sight returned. Um, and, and we think possibly uh, never fully healed, but partially healed because it seemed like he continued to have an ailment in his eyes as he grew older and older. But Paul started preaching immediately. But then after Damascus, he started preaching and it was immediately persecuted. Remember he was lowered down in Damascus out of a window in a, in a basket. Do you remember that? He had to escape with his life. Well, after that, Paul goes into Arabia for three years before he goes to Jerusalem. And there's not a whole lot that we know about those three years in Arabia However, I think because of what Paul is doing here, I think he does give us insight to most likely what was happening. The disciples or the apostles had three years with Jesus. And I think what Paul is, is leading us to, to see is that he had three years of revelation from Jesus in Arabia. 
The other apostles got that, and in those three years, most likely, Paul was in Arabia, and all his education was coming together. Everything that he got from his studies in the Old Testament, from Gamaliel and others, other Pharisees, everything that he had learned over the years of his life, when he meets Jesus and he's changed by the power of the gospel, he goes into Arabia, and what I think is happening is he's getting this direct revelation that he's talking about. I'm getting revelation from Jesus Christ, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach to the Gentiles. He didn't go consult anybody. But in verse 12, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And I think what he is saying is in these three years, he is getting direct connections from the Old Testament to what Christ has done and accomplished. And all these things are like firing off in his brain and he's realizing, oh my goodness, Jesus is the true sacrificial lamb. Oh my goodness, Jesus is really the the ram that was caught in the thicket. Oh my goodness, Jesus is truly the prophet, priest, king, and judge. Jesus really is the culmination of all that was being prophesied about in the Old Testament. And I see it through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the teaching of Christ himself. This is what John Stott said, great commentator and and pastor passed away a few years ago. He said this, we believe that in the period of withdrawal, as mentioned in the Old Testament scripture, as he meditated on the Old Testament scriptures, on the facts of the life and death of Jesus that he already knew in his own experience at conversion, we believe that the gospel of the grace of God was revealed to him in its fullness. It has even been suggested that those three years in Arabia were a deliberate compensation for the three years of instruction which Jesus gave the other apostles, but in which Paul missed. Now he had Jesus to himself, as it were, for three years of solitude in the wilderness. But here, I think, is the point. Those things are somewhat speculation. We can't fully know. There's a kind of a cloud of darkness that hangs over that time in Arabia where we want to know more. But Paul's whole point here is that the true gospel does not have its origins in the teachings of men. It comes from God himself, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This message is God-given. The gospel is too good to come from the hearts of evil men. Now, after Paul had been taught by Jesus, after it had been revealed to him, and after his time at Arabia, Paul would then, after those three years, go into Jerusalem. And what he wants them to know is, I didn't go immediately. I just I met with Peter, and I met with John, and, and excuse me, and James, but I didn't go up and just consult with all the apostles and get this message from them and then have them kind of download it to me and, hey, hey hurry and tell me all the, the ins and outs of the gospel of Jesus. He, he received this from Jesus. And if you look in verse 18, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, which is Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went up to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Okay, so Paul went after three years to meet with Peter and with James. And uh, so the message of the gospel was not received from Paul by Peter and James. This is the case he's wanting to build, that this is a supernatural message. Churches of Galatia, this is not something that Peter and the apostles made up and I'm getting by way of proxy from them. This is from God himself, and I am coming with the authority, not just of these other apostles, I'm coming with the very authority of God himself. This is the message that God has given. And he's building the case. He tells them it was a friendly visit, 15 days. And uh, he just wants them to know that it, it's God-given. I went and met with the apostles, but it wasn't downloaded to him from them. And then finally, he wants them to know about how tra- transforming this, this gospel really is. Paul ended up going, verse 21, to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. 
And I was still unknown, he says, in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They are only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. So Paul goes to these three regions that he mentions. Travels, they didn't yet know Paul. But they had heard this amazing report. And what was the report? The man who is persecuting us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. The man leading the charge in opposition to us. This gospel is so transforming and it's so powerful. A gospel of the free grace of Jesus Christ. It's so powerful that that man who was leading the charge in opposition to us is now preaching the faith that he was once trying to destroy. And I want you to see this, the power of a, of a changed life. It really is impactful. When, when, when somebody's walking this way, walking with the ways of the world, or walking as Paul was in the ways of Judaism, and his life was so changed that now he is living 180 degrees opposite, people took notice. And they didn't know necessarily all the ins and outs, people of, of Judea, the surrounding towns. The people in Jerusalem knew about Paul for his status and his acclaim as an academic and, and a lover of the traditions of of his fathers. But these surrounding regions heard this report that kept going out. Hey, did you hear? What was his name? But the guy that was persecuting us, that was leading the charge, the guy that oversaw Stephen being killed, you know what I heard? I heard that guy's now a Christian. He's following the way. He's now preaching the faith. Can you believe that? And Paul wanted them to know. The gospel of Jesus is not something that just comes to somebody and leaves them unchanged to go out and live in a sinful manner. The gospel of Jesus is powerful to transform. It is the transforming power of the gospel that moved Paul from a persecutor to a proclaimer. It makes an impact when people see men and women walking in the way of the world and in opposition to God and then all of a sudden walking and living with different allegiances makes a difference. You, I'm telling you, right now in this world, just like I said early in the sermon, uh, or the, like if you, if you dare to say publicly that there's two genders and bi, like that kind of stuff, you know everything, uh, people don't like that. I mean, it's easier than ever, I think. I mean, it's, it's in our country's history right now to receive some sort of verbal criticism. I mean, just say something basically that's just basic truth. There's only one way to heaven, Jesus. And see how that plays with your friends, there's, there's only one gospel that, that doesn't give you a whole lot of, uh, you know, good PR in, in the world. But when somebody lives with different allegiances, and my allegiances here are not just to get people to like me and, and, and to win the praise of people, look at me, just get in line and just nod your head and, and go with the status quo and do whatever the news says and do whatever the pop stars say and, and do whatever whoever says and get in line with the most popular thing so you don't get canceled now. Chris Harrison even gets canceled, right? We'll talk about The Bachelor again. I said it right this time and didn't say the B word this time, for goodness sake. Everybody gets canceled and everybody wants position and power. And then you see this group of people over here saying, I, I don't care what you think about I, I just care what my Heavenly Father thinks, and I want to live according to what He has said, and I would just, I'm going to enjoy everybody else is, is, is worried and concerned, and the world's I mean, just burning down. And you know what? We're happy. We're loving life. We're going to go home and eat brisket. We're enjoying our family. We're going to keep living our life and continuing to worship the Lord and gather for church and pray for each other. We're going to keep doing what God has called us to do. It didn't really matter what the world does. That's different. Your allegiances are different. Well, if you do what God has told you to do, people are going to be unhappy with you. So, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. People take notice. 
Notice the result of Paul's conversion. Verse 24, this is powerful. They'd heard the report, and they glorified God because of me. People glorified God because of what they saw in Paul. They saw what God did. This is awesome. It's the point of our salvation. This is the point. That people would glorify and honor the living God. That's the goal of mission. John Piper famously said this, and I love this. He said, missions exist because worship doesn't. Okay. If people don't know Jesus, that means they're not worshiping him. Missions exist not first to see people saved, but to see people become worshipers of the Most High God. What we want in mission, what drives us in our life is God deserves praise, glory, and honor from everyone in the world. So I want people to repent and believe in Jesus so God will get praise due His name. And so I want to live differently. I want people to look at me and I want them to glorify God too because I want person by person the praise of God to move beyond me into this city, into this world, into my family, into this city, into this world. And I want more and more and more people throughout southern Illinois glorifying the living God. That's what we all want. It's what we should want. We don't just want them saved for no purpose, but when people become Christians, they become worshipers of the Most High God and that's what we want. Worship God. He's worthy of praise. We live in such a way that other believers look at our life and want to glorify God for what He has done in us and what He is doing for us. When I see what God is doing in my family, or when I see what God is doing in our church, I glorify God personally. When I see what God is doing in my family, when I see what God is doing in our church, I glorify God. We want people, and we want to see lives transformed. And when we see lives transformed, we thank God for it. God, thank you. You're changing the life of my son. God, thank you. You're changing the lives of the people in our church. God, thank you for what you're doing. Glorify God for all that he's doing. Praise God for it. And our final commission this morning, look to Christ. We live in a world that wants you to march at the beat of every, just the same drummer. But we live our lives to the beat of Jesus Christ, what he says. We follow him in his footsteps. He walks there and we follow him wherever he's going. That's what we do. We don't live our lives to the beat of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We don't live our lives to the beat of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We have been saved and God himself has revealed himself to us in His Son, Jesus Christ, and this message we believe is not man's gospel. It's God's gospel. And we get to live in it. We get to enjoy it. We get to be transformed by it. And final question I have for you today. What area of your life needs to be transformed by the power of God? Right now. There's going to be things in your life 20 years and 30 years from now that you'll answer in a different way than you do right now. But what in your life needs to be transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus? If all your sins are completely forgiven and taken care of, and you are fully forgiven in a right relationship with God, in gratefulness, what needs to change in your life? I can think of things that need to change just from yesterday in my life. There are things in all of our lives that need to, ch need to change. We get to live like we have been changed by the power of the gospel because we have. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for all that you've done.